podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today, well, I don't know about you, but I've got a very lovey-dovey story, but your book doesn't look like it's that. It's got love in it. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> How's your week been this week, Emily? It's been okay. I have been teaching myself embroidery, Ooh. which is... It's fun, but like... It's so detail-oriented that if I do it for too long, I get lazy with it, and then I just make a mess. Yeah. It's like I can only do it for short bursts of time, but it's good. I like it. Good. What else have I done? I ordered a five-sauce vinyl. <laughs> it's probably the high- highlight of my week, won't lie. Emily's the biggest five-sauce stan in the uh, like country now. Yeah. It's a deluxe edition. It's neon pink. It's got a bonus song on it. Like, we love I've, it. I've gone for it. I'm very excited. Oh, and I'm seeing my two of my best friends tomorrow. Oh, exciting. I'm getting to see Hannah, who I haven't seen since March, and Alice, who I've not seen since August, September, oh nearly a year. Oh, well, hi, Hannah. Hi, Alice. I know, that'll be nice. Yeah, it will be. How's your week been? It's been fine. It's been a long week of work, but I'm here now. And my mum bought me sunflowers, which was very sweet of her. Oh, that's And nice. that cheered me up greatly during the midweek. And also... Taylor Swift dropped a new album. I'm not ready to talk about that yet. But I did wonder if you were going to mention it. Or... <laughs> like, like, needless to say, I'm going to be mentioning it for probably the remainder of this podcast's yeah. existence, but I'm. it's still sinking in. So, speaking of... Lifetime infatuations. Mm. What is your weekly infatuation? My infatuation this week is Bone Crier's Moon by Catherine Purdy. What a title. I know. So this came out, it came out this year. It came out in March. It actually came out the same day as Chain of Gold by Cassandra Clare, which is probably a fun fact that only I care about. <laughs> only relevant to you. <laughs> only relevant to me. But yeah, to be honest, this isn't a book I would normally pick up. Even though I like the Shadowhunter books and I like magical realism and stuff, like I don't just read like pure fantasy yeah. very much. But I was recommended it on Goodreads, which is how I find a lot of my books now. Nice. I'm quite late to the game of Goodreads. Do you use it? I've honestly never used it in my life. Yeah. I only started using it this year, but like I really like it. Their recommendations have been pretty spot on so far. And also the cover art for this book is by Charlie Bowater, who I follow on Instagram. I already did. And she's done Shadowhunter art and stuff as well. So I just thought, you know, I like that artist. Goodreads haven't done me wrong yet. So (laughs) placed an order and thought Here we are. (laughs) Is she the, did we show her artwork or was that someone else's No, that was someone else. That was Gabriella Bajoso. Oh yeah, okay. But yeah, she she also did Shadowhunter art. Anyway... (laughs) This book is the first in a duology. I think the next one's due to come out next year. And, right, to be honest, a couple of the characters really annoyed me in this book, but I think it's because I think their motivations will make more sense in the second book. Right. That's what I'm hoping anyway. I love that you launch in with, like, they really annoyed me. But that's just to say I liked the rest of the book. So, yeah, I liked the, like, the mythology of the world... And I really liked, it's told from the perspective of three different characters. Okay. So like each chapter is like a different person. And I'm going to talk about both of those things, but I thought I'd talk about the characters first because then I can kind of give you like some story okay. and stuff as well. Two of our main characters are Aless and Sabine. Nice names. And they're part of a female-only group. It's a female. Like lots of the words are in, like inspired by French words. Okay. And they call themselves Loresses. 
but the general population call them bone criers. And I'm going to call them bone criers because that is easier to say. (laughs) (laughs) Valid. Yes. And so what these group of women do is they ferry the dead once a month. Right. So they play a song made on a flute made of bone and they guide souls either to Alara's night heavens, so like heaven, or to Tyrus's underworld, so hell. If they don't do this, then the dead just like walk among the living, which obviously you don't want. Yeah, it's not ideal, is it? It's not great. So you would think that people would like the bone criers because they're protecting everyone, right? (laughs) However, if a girl in this meal wants to become a bone crier, she has to complete a ritual. So the first step is that she has to kill three animals and like wear their bones and to basically take on their characteristics. So like, for example, one of the animals Elise kills is an ibex, like a mountain goat, so she has good balance. One of Sabine's is a salamander so that she can heal quickly. And once she's got these three grace bones, is what they call them, she has to kill something else. And that is the boy that she's destined to love. What?! This mythology is wild already. I know. I've never heard anything like. Yeah, well, I've, I heard, know. I've heard the you have to kill the person you're destined to love, but the animals is fucking me up a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. Uh, yeah, it's cool. It's like I mean, S- Sabine has some issues with this. I will get into that. Okay, carry on. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, that brings us to the third main character, and that is Bastion. Now, Bastion has a bit of a vendetta against Bone Criers because his dad was killed by one when okay. he was eight years old. And it's 10 years later, and he's basically decided that he's going to kill a bone crier to, like, get his revenge. And to get revenge for his friends Jules and Marcel's dad, who was also killed by a bone crier. And so Bastion and Alice meet. What I'd like to do today is reads from, like, their meeting Mm -hmm. and part of the ritual that they do, which is a dance. (laughs) It's sounding more bizarre the more I'm talking about it, but it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to read this bit because I think it's a good example of the way that Catherine Purdy write their different motivations and how they both like contrast and parallel with each other. So the first quote is from Bastion's point of view. All right, let's dive in. (laughs) Like the more I'm talking about this, I'm like, that's so weird. This is so weird. (laughs) This is the weirdest sounding book that you've described so far and you have described some weird books. I have described some weird books. Anyway... If the bone crier wants a soulmate, I'll give her one. I'll give her me. Then I'll break her. Jules, let's go. I stalk forward through the wild grass and roll out a crick in my neck. When I take my first step onto the road, my breath catches. The bone crier's ghostly white dress stands out against the dark stones of the bridge. She's real. This is finally happening. My fists tighten. I approach like the thief I am. Her back is to me, her hair sleek and long in deep copper. My eyes follow the loose waves down to the curved line of her hips. I can't look away. Why should I? I tread louder, scuffing the bridge stones, bold and reckless. I'm here for you. The trap is mine this time, not yours. Fifteen feet ahead, the bone crier pulls the flute from her mouth. Her shoulders rise as she breathes in. Like some creature from a dream, she turns to me. Her trailing dress resists the movement and clings to the ground in spiralling folds. She looks sculpted from marble, like something my father would have painstakingly crafted, one chisel strike after another. My skin flushes with heat. The girl's hair billows around her slender shoulders. Her beauty is unfair, masking the vicious predator within. But didn't I expect that? 
then why is my blood pounding? Her large eyes grow umber in the moonlight. Her lashes are dark, not warm in colour like her hair. I'm near enough to notice that now. Somehow I've moved another ten paces closer, drawn to the look she gives me. Feral, sure, astonished. I'm mirroring that look. We're both staring at our destiny. Certain death, but I won't be the one to die. What is your name, the girl asks in a slightly high-pitched voice. She's young, I realise, close to my age. Was the bone crier who killed my father so young? Did she only seem older because I was a child? Bastion, I blurt. So much for giving a false name. I meant to reveal my own in due time. I won't slip up again. Bastion, she repeats, her mouth carefully trying the word like she's never heard it before. It makes my own name feel new to me. I'm Alice. She twists the bone flute in her hands, a sign of nervousness, or a trick to make me believe she's nervous. Bastion, you were chosen by the gods. It is a great honour to dance with Alures, a greater honour to dance with the heir of Matrona Adiva's female. Are you asking me to dance? I play along and steady my feet. This girl, Alice, is the equivalent of a princess, my perfect victim. Her people will think twice before they kill another man. A surprising bubble of laughter spills out of her. Forgive me, I'm getting ahead of myself. She smooths her hair back, walks to the parapet and sets the bone flute on the ledge. When she returns, her eyes are focused like the huntress, the murderess she is. Bastion, will you dance with me? I fight the urge to glance over my shoulder. Jules should be under the bridge by now. With any luck, she's already dug up the first bone. I bow like I've seen barons do. One arm folded in front of me. The strap of my knife harness pulls tight across my chest. It will be my greatest pleasure to dance with you, Alice. Can I just say that I, I did listen to the whole of it, but the line, it makes my own name feel new to me. I know, I love that line. Oh my God. Yeah, I love that line that so much. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was quite long, but I just think like, I don't know, I love how she's written him where he's like, he's so intent on killing her, but then he's talking about how beautiful she is at the same time and he's really conflicted in his own mind. I just, I thought it was really good. Yeah, it's also like, I like how he, he's like second guessing everything she does. He's like, oh, she's nervous, but oh wait, maybe she's just trying to make me think that she's nervous. Yeah. Like, and the idea that like at the start, he says something like her dress is like white like a ghost but yeah. then really soon after that he says she's real yeah yeah and just like the juxtaposition of like this ethereal but like very real danger oh, yeah it's good exactly and so i'll read now from alessa's point of view and then like we can kind of like compare them it is another kind of longer one but i just i think it's worth it okay cool it's fine fog rolls onto the bridge and clings to the lower half of my dress blending into the white of my skirt it makes it appear even longer. I lift my leg and turn on one toe, the fog swirling with me. Bastion's lips glisten in part as he watches. When I finish revolving, he flexes his hands and reaches for my waist. I touch his wrists and whisper, not yet. Sorry, he flinches back, his voice hoarse. All you have to do is watch for now. This is my part of the dance. When it's your part, I'll guide you. He swallows, rakes his hand through his hair, clears his throat, got it. His pensive expression draws a smile out of me, but he doesn't smile back. Are all boys this focused? One day I'll find out what it takes to rouse Bastion's laughter. I'll make a game of discovering all the ways to lighten his mood. I'll... You'll do nothing, Alice. Not in this life. He dies at the end of this dance. 
My stomach sinks, but I straighten my shoulders. I glide in circles around Bastion. My arms rise in the elegant arcs and patterns Giselle taught me. I'm representing life through the elements. The breath of the wind, the currents in the sea, the energy of the earth, the heat of flickering flame, the everlasting soul. Bastion's sea blue eyes follow my every move. Do you think it's cruel to tempt a man with his life when you're inevitably going to kill him? Sabine asked last night, riddling me with questions about the dance de Lamont before we went to sleep. Would you play with a hare all day before you ate it for supper? You wouldn't eat a hare anyway, I said, and poked your stomach. It's just a dance, Sabine, just another part of the rite of passage. When I'm done, I become a farrier. That's all that matters. That's all that matters, I remind myself, as I twist and turn and show Bastion every angle of myself. I stroke my face and brush the back of my hand down my throat, my chest, my waist, my hip. You're offering your body, Giselle explained. The shape of your figure, the beauty of your face, the strength of your limbs. I gather my hair in front of my shoulder. I comb my fingers through it so Bastion can see its length and auburn colour, its shine and waving texture. Fire burns in his gaze and my breath trembles. It's just a dance, Alice. I close my eyes and force my mind away from here. I see myself wearing my same rite of passage dress, but I'm standing on the soul bridge, not Castle Pont. I hold a staff in my sure grip and take my post alongside my sister farriers. At the end of the bridge, in front of the gates of the underworld and paradise, my mother plays the bone flute and lures the dead. I lead the willing souls and I fight the resistant. I ferry with just as much strength and skill as a diver, and when the last soul crosses the bridge and the gates close, she turns to me. Her eyes shine, warm and loving and proud, and she smiles and says, Are you finished? My eyes fly open. My mother is gone. Bastion is staring back at me. He fidgets in his fine clothes like they itch him. You said I had a part to play, he prompts, and darts a quick glance around us. Is he nervous or eager? The breeze tussles his dark and glossy hair. My fingers twitch, longing to touch the wild strands that grow long and shaggy over his ears and the nape of his neck. Will you show me? He asks, his voice treading between gruff and soft. Will you? He looks down and scratches his sleeve. Even under the night sky, my graced vision captures the flush rising in his cheeks. His gaze crawls back up to me. Will you take your time? My blood quickens. I begin to understand why the gods chose Bastion for me. Beneath the tame sea of his eyes lies a tempest, a strength to match mine. I sweep my hair back so it conceals my knife harness again. Oh. <laughs> uh, I love how she's like written the knife in like both bits, like yes. the fact that they're like concealing this knife from each other, and like neither of them thinks that the other knows that they're gonna die. Like it's all very like they're playing mind games with each other. I love it. <laughs> oh my god, that's so... The sexual tension already! <laughs> These people have just met. I know. No, that was very cool. And yeah, like I like as well that it's a dance. It's just a good visual metaphor. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I like this whole like concealing stuff from each other as well, but like they're meant to be so physically like close to each other. Mm. There's a quote later in the book that I just think kind of sums up the humour of this book. Because I think it's quite funny when she's like in that daydream about like mm. fighting with her mother and stuff and he's just like, are you done? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a quote later in the book where Alice says, the sooner I kill Bastion, the better I'll feel. We can work out our differences in the afterlife. <laughs> 
I feel like someone wants to put like a minion meme of that and like <laughs> hashtag marriage. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I love like a star-crossed lover story anyway, but I just like that this one's so dark and the fact that they both only meet because they both plan to kill each other, but they're both pretending to have this like attraction for each other as well. Or are they? <laughs> or are they? I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so yeah, I'll move on to talk more about the mythology and the way that bone criers are talked about in the book. And I'll read a couple quotes about like the Alara and Tyra story, that, like the bone criers. It's kind of like their religion. And the first one is from Sabine's point of view. And I haven't really focused on her story in this episode because it's quite hard to talk about her part without being too spoilery. But she does have a kill story. She's essentially on like a solo rescue mission throughout the book. And she has loads of inner conflict about the bone crier rituals and stuff. Like killing the animals, killing a person. Like she doesn't really want to do that. (laughs) Seems iffy. It gives you a more varied look because obviously Aless is like in it. She she, like wants to be part of this life and Sabine's a bit like, "Eh, don't know. Yeah, so it's almost like a third outside but inside perspective. Yeah, because like you've got Aless who's all for it, Bastion who obviously hates the bone criers, and Sabine who's like, it's her family, like she's part of it. But she's also like, are we doing the right thing? But anyway, so this quote is about the bridge which the bone criers bring all the dead to. And there's like this bridge that they all have to go to. And then they can either go, like, I think it's like to the side to go to like Heaven Gate or like straight on to go to the underworld. As the land bridge continues to surface, I have to force myself to breathe. I gaze at the serene beauty before me, the silvery sea and the embrace of the limestone cliffs the silhouetted sea stacks and large rocks guarding the mouth of the inlet. At the dawn of time, this was the place where the first Lores was born. Alara gave birth to her in a beam of silver moonlight, but when Tyrus tried to catch his daughter's fall, he couldn't reach the night heavens from his underworld kingdom. To save her, he formed a bridge between worlds out of the earth that later became Southgal. The child lived and thrived, and the gods taught her how to open the gates to their realms and ferry the dead. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I like how, I know it's basically like exposition, but I, I like how all of the Alara and Tyrus story has that kind of like mythos inspired kind of tone. You know, like a Greek myth and mm-hmm. like the way it's written is just so, it's like matter of fact, so you believe it, but it also feels very magical. Yeah, yeah. There is definitely a trail of logic there, but none of the things are actually possible. Yeah, exactly. So like... Like, obviously you'd make a bridge to catch your falling star child. So yeah, all the, the bone criers get their strength from the moonlight. Like, you keep hearing about this right the book. And when you hear that story, how the child was born in moonlight, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> like, that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, the last quote I've got is another Alara and Tyra story, which is passed down through the bone criers' generations. And like I said, there's lots of these kind of told throughout the book, because often Aless and Sabine kind of justify the killing that they have to do by like talking about this, you know, essentially religion. Mm-hmm. But I like this quote in particular, uh, and I'll talk about why once I've read it out. So this one's from Bastion's perspective. My throat closes on a forced laugh. Well, I'm still living, right? She swallows, for now. What do you mean? Aless tips her head back like she's staring at a sky I can't see. You have one year, Bastion. Her chest sinks in. If I don't complete the ritual before then, you'll die regardless. The gods always find a way. I grow silent for a moment, thinking about how Jules and Marcel's father died. And how are you punished if you fail? 
She draws a long breath and holds my gaze. The gods find a way to kill me too. My heart struggles to beat. What kind of raw deal is that? Aless looks down at her hands. No worse than the fate of Tyrus and Alara, I suppose. What, eternal glory, I scoff. They have suffered too. They married in secret when the world was formed. Balin and Gael forbade their kingdoms to join, but Tyrus and Alara wanted to be together. When Balin found out, he cast heaven into the night sky, and Gael opened the earth to swallow hell. Tyrus and Alara have never been able to be together since. So let me get this straight. They want you to feel their pain. Or they want us to learn how to overcome it. Maybe it would show them how. I rub a hand over my face and push up to my feet. I have to get out of here. I can't listen to stories of gods that punish mortals because they can't figure out their own problems. Oh! <laughs> yes. I subscribe to that. Yeah. I just think, like, it's kind of like a YA, or just fantasy in general, I suppose, like a kind of trope that a teenager hears something that's, like, fact, you know, it's from history, or, like, you know, this is the way things are, and they just kind of point out that it's stupid. (laughs) And, like, there's something fun about reading that because they're pushing against what they've been told and that's what makes the story. Absolutely. I also think it is just, it's never not funny when you can so matter-of-factly diss a big (laughs) massive. Like, whenever anyone is saying that something's like a tradition or something and then someone points out that like well there's no reason for that yeah it just pleases me so yeah to be honest that that's kind of all i've got today because i can't really say much else without giving it away and yeah i don't think the quotes i've picked show the characters off that well like i don't think you get a lot of the characterization from what i just read out but i will say like all their points of view are very distinct which is obviously what you want when you're reading a book that has like yeah so like i said not my usual pick but i really enjoyed it and i'm gonna read the second book when it eventually comes out because i want to see what happens do you know what it's not my usual like genre either but i'm really interested to read that just because that humor in it has like hooked me and also just the weirdness of the myth in it yeah and like all the rituals i like i like a ritualistic book yeah i don't know what it is about it but i like it too i like when a book has like a very it's got a tradition that they can like spell it all out mm-hmm. like even though people are picking it apart and stuff like it's so solid and like she's definitely thought this through like yeah it's like well obviously it's not a similar genre or anything but like in the handmaid's tale it, when it explains like all the reasons for the different colors of dresses and like the yeah. way that the society is set up the way it is like all the reasons why a lot of that isn't to do with the actual story that you're reading yeah but it's just so good so yeah that's my pick this week well thank you for sharing that i really enjoyed that And what is your infatuation this week? My infatuation this week, and infatuation is the right word for it, (laughs) it's called Out of Love, and it's the debut novel by Hazel Hayes. The special thing in, like, the sort of tagline of this book is that it is a love story told in reverse. Yeah, I really want to read this. It's really good. (laughs) Obviously, people were saying that it was good before it even came out, like, the proofs all had really good reviews, but... I was a bit like, how are you going to tell a love story in reverse and make it compelling? Because obviously it's not a spoiler to say that it starts at the breakup. The couple aren't together at the start of the book, at the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. But she has. I'll go into a little bit of background first because it's relevant to what I want to say about the book. 
So for anyone that doesn't know, Hazel Hayes, she's a filmmaker and a writer and she's got a background in the horror genre. So this is a bit of a swerve for her to go to romance. And just a little aside that I really liked is that when she was asked what drew her to romance, she said she can think of nothing more horrific than love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which I just thought was a, a cool thing for a writer to say. So just in terms of like putting her in a context of a genre... She would definitely fall into the category of, like, Irish Renaissance that we discussed in episode one. So, like, Sally Rooney, Anna Barnes. If you've read Normal People and you have, like, a Normal People-shaped hole in your heart, read it out of love because (laughs) it's very much of that ilk in the way that it's essays-shaped like stories. So, yeah, you'd think it would be difficult to spoil this book as well because it literally begins at the end of the relationship, but obviously that's not the plot then. There's like all these amazing little twists and turns and I'm going to try and not give away too much there. So what I'm going to not talk about so much is the most remarkable thing about the book, which is its structure. She manages to like weave together the significant moments in A, the relationship and B, the narrator's life. And it's almost like a chain link structure. So every piece is a separate small story, but they're linked to each other by the parts chronologically before and after them. She'll use a variety of different effects to do this, so sometimes it's an event that's mentioned in the preceding chapter makes up the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Or she'll like zero in on an object in one chapter and then the next chapter will be like the story behind that. Or like it'll be a character will come in and then she'll explain how they knew this person. Yeah. That That struck me because telling a story backwards chronologically could be quite confusing. You could do it in a really like modernist way mm-hmm. and she hasn't. It feels like you're just reading a normal story and you kind of forget that you're reading it backwards in time. Yeah. Well done, Hazel, is all I'm going to say about <laughs> the structure. Like I say, I'm not going to dwell too much on that because then it's hard not to give spoilers. The thing that I am going to talk about today is the moments of inaction and meditation in the narration. One of the big themes of the book is mental health and I love the book because it reflects this not just in its content, like there is descriptions of like panic attacks, depressive episodes and therapy, but it's also in the form. So I said before that Hayes reminded me of Anna Burns who wrote Milkman because even though their narration styles are really really different, she echoes that habit of reflecting on and exploring a concern quite like overtly she doesn't try to embed it too much Mm -hmm. she'll take a moment to just talk about this thing and I really I really like that a lot of people maybe wouldn't get on with that but I like it for example near the beginning of the book there's quite a fast moving scene involving a pregnancy scare and this paragraph is just given some space to stand alone on the page away from the action of the scene I also think like putting it on its own paragraph physically on the page makes it nice How unceremonious this all is. A world full of women, alone on toilets, pissing on sticks. Each new life heralded by a piece of urine-soaked plastic. What am I supposed to do now? What does she do now, I wonder, the woman who wants this? I suppose she cries, a giddy little cry. Then she gets ready to tell the father. Maybe she cooks him a nice meal, and wears a nice dress, and sits across the table from him, beaming. And he leans over to pour her some wine and she says none for me. And at first he doesn't understand, but then recognition dawns and he kisses her and holds her hand and they laugh and embrace and make plans late into the night. And she worries she's not ready, but he tells her that she is. 
and he worries they don't earn enough, but she tells him they'll make do. And they share their hopes and fears about it, about the family they'll become. Maybe it's fucking magical. I wouldn't know. Oh, I love that. That just sounds so hazel. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you never really watched her YouTube videos or anything, did you? No, I didn't. I mostly know her from Instagram. So I, I've watched her YouTube videos and, like, that's just so much her voice. Oh, I loved that. She does jump right back into the action of the narrative after that, and that comes right after yeah. a moment of action. But just that wee bit of monologuing and also, like, the fact it's a fantasy that yeah. she goes into, yeah. like, it, it gives it a little bit of space, and I think it makes you feel, like, closer to the character. Yeah, and that's just how people, like, think. Like, yeah. And, or it's how I think. Like, I'll just daydream about, like, random stuff while something else is happening. Right? Yeah. It's such a good way of writing a reaction. Yeah. It's not, like, trying to show it through what she does. It's it's almost like an aside. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um... And another instance where this technique is used is for exposition. She draws a focus to a sort of inner meditation quite often, as she's done there. And that is like a really clever way throughout the book where she exposes the plot details, which otherwise would be really clunky because she's having to explain stuff back backwards in yeah. time. This is when we know that they're broken up, the, the couple, and she's looking at her ex-boyfriend's social media. So the inner meditation that she starts with here is that she's actively thinking about her anxiety. I check my phone. I sent Theo a message last night to say I hoped he'd arrive in one piece and that he was having a good time. Still no reply. I wonder whether to try and call him, what I would say if he picked up. Panic grips me. I feel my chest tighten. I can hear my therapist's voice in my head reminding me to stay in the observer role, to stop and notice my feelings instead of being overwhelmed by them. I notice I'm feeling anxious. Good. I take a few mindful breaths, then scroll idly through Facebook while I plan what to say. I'm about to stop scrolling and call Theo when I see a colleague of his has posted photos of the wedding. The bride, the cake, the speeches, and several shots of their team huddled together in a garden at twilight, drinks in hand and toothy smiles all round. There's Theo, still in his suit but with his top button open and his green tie loosened slightly. And in every photo, right beside him, under his arm, in fact, is Leslie. Leslie sits opposite Theo at work. I've met her several times, and she's always seemed quite pleasant, if a little stuck up. Most worryingly, though, she is exactly his type. I suppose I should be his type, but I'm not. When we met, he told me there were three types of women he disliked. Women who smoke, women who vote Labour, and women who have tattoos. I don't smoke, but I do vote Labour, and a few months into our relationship I got my first tattoo, which just so happened to be the topic of our first fight. Theo's type is what I like to call a horsewoman. Horsewomen are not women who look like horses, but rather women who look like they spend time around horses. They wear very little makeup. They never dye their hair. They are plain, but pretty. They order salads in restaurants. They come from money. They vote conservative. They study at prestigious universities. Then they settle down with a nice Tory boy and throw their degree out the window in favour of raising his bratty Tory children. Basically, a horsewoman is everything I'm not, but Leslie is one of them. The frequency with which Theo has mentioned Leslie lately has increased. This is a tactic, I've learned, that men employ in order to make their inappropriate feelings for someone else feel more appropriate. Hiding in plain sight, as it were. They've also been going for lunch and to the gym together more often. That's not cheating, I tell myself, you ring paranoid. But here she is, hair down, tits out, under my boyfriend's arm. 
And here I am, with his unwanted, unborn child inside of me. I see he's commented on one photo. Best day ever, it says. All caps, two exclamation marks. I notice I'm feeling an incandescent rage. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see the link here. um, And that's what I love about this little excerpt is that she starts off obviously talking about anxiety and noticing your feelings. And then before you know it, you're in this whole rant about Leslie and horsewomen and like exposing that whole subplot that you didn't know was there before Mm -hmm. and then she brings it back to I notice I'm feeling an incandescent rage. She naturalises it even though it feels like a bit of an aside and I just think that's a very clever way of exposing your your subplots and don't worry because again that is very close to the beginning of the book so it's not spoiling too much. And so those are early examples but once she's kind of established that aside technique She begins to use it to push higher stakes parts of the novel. One of the cool twists of the novel is that the narrator is a bisexual woman in a relationship with a man. And one of the really pervasive ideas in the novel is like an unexplored side of herself or like an unexplored realm of pleasure because of that. There's this little moment that I'd like to share. A few minutes later, I'm draining the dregs of chocolate milk from a bowl when a bumblebee drifts through the front door. I watch the bee navigate the room, dipping and diving, inspecting objects, then quickly losing interest in them. He reaches the window and bumps clumsily against the wooden frame over and over. I grab a notebook from a stack on the sofa and try to usher him outside with it, but as I lean across the ledge, my knee knocks against something. I turn just in time to see a potted plant teetering towards the edge, and I dive to catch it, but I'm too late. The clay pot plummets downwards, crashing onto the bonnet of a parked car below. The sound blasts through the empty street, and a man walking his dog stops to glance in my direction before carrying on, uninterested. The bee glides casually past my face and out into the day. I hear a woman's voice say, oops, and I look up to see the girl in the window again. She's sitting with her back against the frame and one leg on the ledge, and she's wearing what looks like a man's pyjama shirt. Her hair, which I can now tell is blonde, is piled in a loose bun on top of her head. She has a book in her hands, but she's not looking at it. She's looking straight at me, and I'm suddenly aware that I have no underwear on. So I love that this is like a little still moment in the flat where you're like watching this bee, and it's just completely out of her head. And that like literally breaks on the plant pot to bring in a new character. Yeah. And I think it's just a beautiful trail of images. The bee bumbling along is very pleasant and warm and then it goes into like sudden chaos. That's a really beautiful aside because it's echoed in the next two paragraphs, which are... Please tell me that's not your car. I shout across to her as my hands instinctively tug the hem of my t-shirt downwards. That's not my car, she replies, and I'm about to exhale in relief when she adds, It belongs to my neighbour. I must visibly deflate because she smiles at me then. It's more of a smirk than a smile, really. There's something quite knowing about it, as if some brilliant joke hangs in the air between us and only she can see it. Don't worry, she says. He's not home. And also he's an asshole. I notice her accent now, but I can't quite place it. Scandinavian, maybe. Something about the way she bounces off certain words is very satisfying. Those expressions like hanging in the air and bouncing off certain words, like the bee just brought that in oh yeah yeah like when it's bouncing, bouncing off, off the, the window. window and i just think like that meditative moment with the bee and the immediate mirroring of that i don't know i just think it's really beautiful i think you know then 
because of how the bee incident ended that this is foreshadowing some chaos. Yeah. Again, it's just like the way that she gives clues and keeps the chronology through these little introspective moments. I just think that it makes it feel so much more three-dimensional. Yeah. And the last example that I wanted to use is for me probably the most potent use of this blend of reflection and narration. And it's at the beginning of a chapter about parents and where the narrator is moving away from home. I am my mother's daughter, for better or for worse. I gravitate towards water when I'm sad. I'm always cold except when I'm too warm. I can't drink milk from a cup or eat soup with a dessert spoon. Driving feels like freedom. Pink suits me. Ice cream gives me indigestion. I bruise easily. I never take the first room I'm offered in a hotel and I can't get into an unmade bed. Last time Theo came to visit, he found me making the bed at midnight and asked why I was bothering to make it only to mess it up again. I stood there with the duvet in my hands and all I could say was, I have to. I told my mother the next day and she said, you get that from me. I'm also riddled with anxiety, plagued by depression and occasionally I find great comfort in the thought of not existing. Did I get that from her too? She drove down to the beach once with a bottle of brandy, a box of pills and no intention of coming home. Oh my god. Right? That transition, for me, was the reason to start that technique to begin with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's easily one of the most dramatic moments in the novel, and it's also the most obvious disconnect of, like, the reflection and the action, Mm -hmm. because it just cuts. Yeah. Like, that first paragraph could stand alone as, like, its own little poetic piece or something. It wouldn't even have to belong to this novel. But I love it because, in this case, it's like the calm before a storm. He's showing, I think, what she's been working up to all through the book with this technique. And I think as well, because we're in an era where self-reflection is such a big part of our culture, embedding it in a first-person storytelling narrative just makes your narrator a lot more believable. Yeah. Because I feel like that sounds more like how a modern person reacts to themselves. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Do you know what I mean? Um, So it just makes the writing a lot more enjoyable. And as I said before, it helps reinforce the ideas of like anxiety and overthinking and overanalyzing, which are present in the novel because it actually rehearses it in the narrative voice. I started off by saying like it's a way for the writer to say what she wants to say about certain issues without having to shoehorn it into the narrative. And that's that's kind of why I love it because it's such a permissive technique. It affords a lot of freedom to the first person narrative voice, particularly the female narrative voice. And yeah, I just think she's done a fantastic job of pulling it off. I think that it makes the book a really valuable book to read because not only are you getting a great story, which obviously I've not gone into too much here, but you're getting really healthy introspection. <laughs> yeah, I love the sound of that so much. It's so beautiful. Yeah, because like you mentioned earlier, like Hazel's made like horror films and stuff before and I've seen those mm. and like the writing in that is incredible. Mm. So I'm very, very intrigued to read a love story. Yeah. I am going to read that one for sure. Even though the plot, if you like, is a breakup, the real plot is learning how they fell in love to begin with. Yeah. It's also such a romantic book in that obviously there's moments of like harsh realism in it like that there. But that whole paragraph about the mum and how she's like her, like just that writing is so romantic. Yeah, that was lovely. I loved that bit. So yeah, I really loved it. I would recommend it to anyone. Emily, 
Emily, how's writing been treating you this week? It's been okay. I've done a wee bit. I feel like I say this every week, but I've been quite busy this week, so I've not had a chance to do a lot, but I have done some. But what I kind of wanted to talk about today isn't necessarily writing, but basically I was Googling something for some writing that I was doing, Mm -hmm. and it got me thinking about all the weird Google searches that I've had to do. Oh my god. So this isn't much for discussion, but I thought I would just list some of the random searches I've made in the past few months, because (laughs) I went through my Google search history. This sounds amazing. I think it's funny, not necessarily because the searches are funny, but because these were all made around the same time and I think you can just see my brain and how it just jumps to a completely different (laughs) topic. So anyway, here's a list. It's just a short list. How to read auras. Violet aura meaning. Yellow aura meaning. Rainbow aura meaning. The cavern club interior. How far can a human man jump? (laughs) How far can a human man jump from standing? (laughs) The Merry Maid of Zenar. Silk shirt men's outfit ideas. How long until you can be a competent ballerina? How much do psychics charge per reading? Secondhand bookshop layouts. Leather bound notebooks old fashioned. Famous cat Cornwall. Wow. <laughs> See, that's this little insight into my brain. <laughs> Do you know what? If I had to identify the person from the Google search history, I would uh... unmistakably know that was you. <laughs> That's hilarious. About the famous cat uh, in Cornwall, I found out there's many. Oh, okay. I, I found the one that I was thinking of, but I found out there are many. Apparently there's also a phantom cat in Cornwall. Alright. So I'm going to look into that more. Yeah, because... I feel like a ghost cat is very your vibe. <laughs> That's literally like all I have to say. I was just going to ask if you remember any weird searches that you've done. Oh god, do you know, I, can't, I probably can't remember any off the top of my head just now, but we have this conversation at work all the time, so I'm a sub-editor for a newspaper, and that often involves like fact checking Mm. so it can be as simple as like you're googling someone's name but a lot of the time you're googling you know the history of this building or like who owns this piece of land and then it'll escalate into like what do you call the baby versions of this species of animal (laughs) yeah i don't know just so many strange and wonderful rabbit holes and we did used to have like a little bit of a competition at work to see who could get the best and weirdest google search legitimately from an article yeah i love that i think that if you went through our our search histories you'd have a field day so how has your writing been this week i've not been doing a lot of writing i've been doing a bit of editing of my own writing mostly for my dissertation but i also was dipping in and out of my folders just to see what I had going on mm-hmm. and it kind of got me thinking about the idea so like quite often in fandom music circles you'll talk about eras about One Direction eras Taylor Swift eras yeah. whatever it can be quite cringy but it can also be really useful to apply that thinking to your own work you can feel really pretentious trying to categorize your own writing into like periods or eras because To me anyway, I often feel like that's something that should come after you've had some publication or professional success. Yeah, yeah. Like other people should do that for you, like (laughs) your readers. But actually, I think it's probably really useful to look at your past projects objectively in terms of moods, themes, concerns, recurrent images, things like that, so that you can A figure out what things are consistently interesting to you, which we've already talked about. Yeah. But also how your work might be made commercially interesting. Yeah, yeah. Basically how you would market it. So I've been doing this a lot this year in particular because I've been submitting this year more than I've ever done before. 
some submissions, particularly for poetry, call for more than one piece. And at that point, you need to decide, based on the publication, if you're going to show variety or if you think that it's better to have some cohesion. Yeah. If they're calling for more than one piece and they're only going to publish one, variety is good. Yeah. But if they're going to publish more than one, if it's like a collection submission, obviously you want to show some cohesion. Yeah. So I thought I'd just tell what my rough categories are in my head. Mm-hmm. I'd say I have three categories. My death and decay pieces, my sparkly difficult pieces and sort of gentle folkloric pieces those are just my stupid words for what i categorize them in my head sparkly and difficult well it is so (laughs) i know what you mean though because i've read your work so like i get it (laughs) i'll explain what i mean though like so i have a lot of pieces that i wrote a couple of years ago where i didn't realize at the time but looking back i was obviously quite interested in like animals bodies like bodily horror the physical world like the limits of living in a body and I did a lot on death because that's the limit of the physical body but that was interesting to me because I still write a lot about the limits of the physical body but more recently it's been to do with like consciousness and like where do you start in your body end like are you your body that kind of thing so that was interesting to look back and see that theme sparkly hard pieces I'd say like I had a big period of like pink feminism I lean into like the minutiae of day-to-day life for girls makeup clothes fashion that kind of thing and it was very like people-based And then I've also got my gentle folkloric pieces, I would say, or I have a style of writing that I come to every now and then that's quite like fabular and like magical, but it's often to do with inheritance and mothers, which I didn't realise until I went and grouped it that way. Mm -hmm. But all of those pieces that have that tone have something to do with the past being passed down. Yeah. Which makes sense because that's what fables are. I rarely look at my own work collectively. I usually just look at individual pieces. Yeah. But it's been really useful this year because when I start to group it together based on just like a vibe, then you can see your patterns and you can even find new avenues to explore. Like if there's a missing avenue in one collection that you think, if I wrote something about this, that would feel really rounded out. Yeah. It can like help to direct your next project. And the result has been feeling more like I have more eras or projects under my belt because it's helped me produce like little chat books or little collections that haven't been published but I have them. The overarching message of all of this is that's when I started to feel like I could call myself a writer because I can confidently speak about my own work and how one era of writing has like influenced another and trace trace my own patterns and yeah. things like that. So my tip for today I guess is if you're serious about getting your writing out there maybe try and go back and analyse it the way you would analyse other people's writing. And maybe try not to focus on the quality because your older stuff is not going to be as good. Yeah. But it tells you a lot about what you're interested in. It can also help you to find out what you've done. Like, have I done that to death? Am I over that? Yeah. What directions you want to go in? And I wanted to ask you, do you do you think about your work in that way? I haven't, but I think I will. <laughs> I don't think of myself as having ears, weirdly, because I feel like... So when I was a teenager, I wrote a lot of weirdly stuff that I write now, like quite gothic, Mm -hmm. like kind of going into magical realism and stuff. And then 
I I blogged for years, which mm-hmm. people might not know, but I had like a fashion and beauty blog and I feel like I I was quite happy to, but I left the kind of fiction writing aside. I was really invested in that. And then when I came to uni, I got back more into fiction, but it was more kind of like personal essays and like short stories and Mm. didn't really have like a... It was more real-based though, realistic. (laughs) Yeah, and like I did have a whole folio that was on like you know all the stages of love like first love and heartbreak and all like so like I was I was very interested in that journey in a and now weirdly I've gone back to writing about gothic a fantasy stuff so yeah it's interesting to look back I looked back at that like novel quote unquote Mm. (laughs) that I wrote when I was like 15 and there's stuff in it that I'm like oh it's not that bad actually yeah I kind of see where I was going (laughs) with that exactly it can unearth stuff that like maybe you didn't pull off so well when you were younger but like it's not a bad idea but yeah no I'll have to that's a good idea I'll I'll go through and see if I if I do have more themes than I think I do when I think of your writing I think of it very much how you've described obviously I didn't know you when you were a teenager but you've told me like it was a lot of like fantasy type stuff and then your blog and I think of that as very different to like your love project yeah and then your current stuff is different yeah, yeah. again so like you probably do have eras but you've just probably never thought, thought of them that it. way because you're not as narcissistic as me <laughs> <laughs> but also like I don't not that I never will but I don't submit to stuff like mm. I just I'm not thinking about it in that way as much yeah I suppose it's not on my mind as much I guess yeah Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? Yes, I do. I've got a song this week. So it's not a new song. It's not even new to me. I've listened to it since it came out a couple of years ago. But I got reminded of it this week and I've listened to it loads. So the song is Berenstein by the band Camino, who I love. They're great. And basically, I was listening to it and that's why we drink. Okay. Which is like one of my favourite podcasts. I think I've binged like nearly 200 episodes through lockdown. Oh it's my god. Ridiculous. But anyway, they were talking about the Mandela effect and how this could be false memory or there's a theory that it's multiple universes branching off. So how it's become like a fact that Darth Vader says, look, I am your father. Mm. But actually he said, no, I am your father. And the theory is that there's a universe somewhere where look I am your father is the correct way right and there's been like a glitch where we've somehow got that knowledge I've probably explained that really no I get you I get you it's like there's been like a like a wormhole or something yeah but anyway one of these Mandela effects is that Berenstein bears are actually spelled Berenstain but everyone pronounces it Berenstain so that was a very long-winded way of saying that Berenstain by the band Camino is a song about two people who aren't together in this universe, but the singer thinks that there's a universe where they are together oh, and they wish they were in that universe. That's so cute. Um, it gives me goosebumps. I have a playlist of songs that like move me in some way that I can't like pin it down why. And this is on it because the bridge just like kills me every time. His voice is like so powerful and full of longing and you're just like, oh, <laughs> I feel it. It's just great and I just wanted to say thanks and that's why we drank for giving me more insight into a song which I already liked and I knew that that's what it was about. I did not know that. But yeah, it gave me more 
insight into like the idea behind the song which is quite cool that is really cool i love the reference to that in the title as well because it would be a cool conceit for the, for a song anyway yeah even if you left out that yeah, that's yeah. that's what it was do you know what i mean like an idea like oh a song about we wish we were in a universe where we could be together that's really nice yeah but the fact that they've included berenstein makes it like seem more real yeah i like that that's very nice What's your quickfire favourite? Shock. My quickfire favourite is Folklore, the eighth studio album by Taylor Swift, which dropped in a surprise release completely out of the blue this week and absolutely took my breath away. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about this album for the rest of my life and probably more fully on this podcast, but quickly, I already love it. It's going to settle in my top three of her albums because it is her first alternative album, which is my favourite genre. I've been waiting for it since Red. I'm so excited. <laughs> her storytelling and her lyrical prowess are sharper than ever because, obviously, girl just continues to improve. But the music is so gentle and it's so heartbreaking. I swear to God, if she'd been able to find the fucking forest that Hosier lives in, he would be on this album. Like, it sounds like a Hosier album. I love it. But the song that got me most excited, like, in a kind of superficial, like, yay way, is called The Last Great American Dynasty simply because it has my name in it okay and I've been waiting a long time in my life to have a song with my name in it it's about a woman named Rebecca who marries a rich oil businessman and then when he dies lives a decadent scandalous life in this big old house and all of the society in the neighborhood hates her and disapproves of her and the hook is I had a marvelous time ruining everything which I think captures my chaotic energy (laughs) perfectly. It's about a real woman who used to live in the house that Taylor Swift now owns. Oh, that's interesting. It's a cool, but the literary parallel that I enjoy there is that it's really about the house. The woman's called Rebecca and it's about a looming wifely spectre inhabiting Mm. the house, which is very demoriating. Yes. Sounds Um, like someone's read a book. It does sound like (laughs) someone has read a book, done it. So, yeah. I just really enjoyed every aspect of that song coming into my life this week. (laughs) And if there are any other Rebecca's out there, you have a song with your name in it now. Enjoy. Rebecca's rant this week is entitled It's 2020, Technophobia Ain't Cute. I love that you've started titling them now. So here is a rant that, if any of my exes ever heard it, would make them go, oh my god, finally. So, you're right. You were right. We are in the calendar year 2020. So being a quote-unquote technophobe is no longer cute. Here's the story. I'm currently doing a master's course and I'm writing my dissertation. And under normal, non-COVID circumstances, I'd have three face-to-face meetings with my tutor, prior to which I'd have sent her a sample of my work. So my tutor, who will remain nameless, has always been old school, which is fine. She'd normally like print out my stuff and annotate it by hand and I wouldn't be able to read or write in any way, but whatever. But obviously we can't do that right now. So I did what any sensible person would do and I attached samples of my writing to an email with a request that she use the word comment function instead, which is easy. Apparently it's fucking not though. Do you know what she said to me? What? My printer's broken. Can you post these pages to me? First of all, this was nearly a week after I'd emailed them. So, like, on the principle of delay versus deadline, no. Second of all, this is not a fucking reasonable request. (laughs) 
from someone who works in education or like someone who lives in the world but like especially someone that works in education I don't care how old you are or how quirky that you think that you are because the inability to work basic functions on a computer is no longer an optional skill in 2020 particularly not in light of the pandemic right we're in a pandemic we cannot be in the same room I am not mailing you physical copies of by the way not a novel six pages if I showed up to work and I was like, I know that we make a newspaper on InDesign, but I just prefer to work on an antique press. They would sack me, rightly, because it's my job to work on a computer. Avoiding technology because you don't like it is valid in your personal life. It's self-defeating, but it's valid. But if you are the type of person that, in your work life, inconveniences others because of your personal technophobia, and I am looking at all the people that go, oh, that's too complicated for me, you'll be quicker at it. All of you folk, grow the fuck up. I hate computers. Emily knows this because she's the one that edits this podcast. (laughs) But the point being, if she couldn't edit it, I would. I'm rubbish with them and they bore me. But fuck me, even I've managed to be relatively proficient. So shove your tree-killing, paper-copying arse away from me. Get with the programme, technophobe people. It's not cute. It's 2020. Do not ask me to send things in the post. Oh, I enjoyed that. Especially because I know who it is. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Time for my insight. Yes, let's go to Emily's insight and calm the vibe a little bit. So, as my Google search history suggests, I've been looking into auras recently for a scene that I was writing and I found an aura colour test. So I don't know how accurate it can be just answering questions online, but my result was interesting and I think quite accurate. Okay. And what I thought I would do is I'll read out mine mm-hmm. and then I think we should pause this and you should take the test and then we can read out yours. Okay. I'll read mine first. I got Violet. The website says, A purple aura means creativity, ideas and enlightenment. Having an aura this colour can indicate all of these things as well as the healing, cleansing and soothing of the soul. And then what it says specifically about violet is, this is the colour of the crown chakra, which relates to the pineal gland and nervous system. Most psychics have this value of purple in their auras. Artists often have this hue as well. This indicates the person is in a good space spiritually and is close to experiencing a state of equilibrium and open awareness. This might not be indicative of your current emotional state, but it means that your spiritual nature is following a higher purpose and more balanced reasoning. I, I can't argue with that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's all right. You are very artistic, so I'll give it that. Yeah. So what's my aura colour now that we've done that very scientific test? <laughs> very scientific test. Your colour is green. Ooh. It says your aura shimmers green. Green is the colour of the heart and of nature. Green is often found within the aura of healers, teachers, and people who work for the public good. It didn't say, like, a specific green. Just generally green? Just generally green. But I'll just kind of list some of them. So it says, like, light green indicates love, healing, and innocence. Forest green says you're a natural healer, you're tied to nature. Yellow green says you're a communicator, you may be an actor, writer, musician, or salesperson. So yeah, there's there's a few different ones, but it just it just said green for you. Hello, I am a Taurus. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I like trees <laughs> and nature. Well, the, the writer and the communicator is good. That bit is true, yeah. And I probably am, like, as much as I'm, like, in my head a lot, I am probably much more of a, like, ruled by my heart kind of a person. 
Do you know what? It's weird though because isn't on our logo you're surrounded by purple clouds and I'm surrounded by green leaves? That, yeah. So maybe you are psychic. So, so maybe I am psychic, <laughs> yeah. I would kind of love a psychic to tell me what my aura is. I feel like I want to know. I want to know if it's violet. <laughs> if anyone can read auras, please let me know. Yeah, please come and do that. Oh my god, we could do it like live. That would be so cool. That would be cool. I do want to go to psychic one day. I've never done it. Really? I'm just intrigued. Like, I don't know if I believe it. I just want to I just want to see what they would say. See, a psychic came to our house once because not to do a psychic reading but because my mum is a nail technician and so she came to get her nails done and yeah. we didn't know that this lady was a psychic she was just a client mm-hmm. but then she started like doing her spooky business in the house and it really <laughs> freaked me out and I was just like could you leave please because I don't want you to be talking about my dead relatives that you don't know about please stop interesting <laughs> Oh, I just, sorry, this is a tangent, but again, when I was listening to him, that's why we drank, someone wrote in about, like, they saw a psychic, and the psychic was just, they were talking about, like, past lives, and they were like, oh, in all your past lives, like, you've died quite early, and this guy's, like, in his 20s, and then she just went, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? Oh... I was the question finder this week (laughs) and the question that I have found is do you finish or feel the need to finish every book you start? Hmm. No I don't I I mostly do finish them but there's been a few where I've not finished them just because I wasn't enjoying it and I think life's too short. (laughs) I agree completely right I'm so on the same side as you here and I I don't know if we've had this conversation before but I couldn't remember if we did but I think it's so rare to come across someone that's like a book person Mm. that admits defeat to a book. Yeah, I don't always like it because I like to have finished a book. Yeah, sometimes you're just like, this is boring. Yeah, like if I don't care what's going to happen next, if I can live without that information, then yeah, then I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah, I agree. There's so many good books out there that Mm. there's no point in wasting your time on a bad book. Exactly. You heard it here first. If you feel <laughs> weirdly trapped to finish books, because I used to when I was younger, because yeah, I was probably like did as well. the girl that read books. Yeah, do you know yeah. What I mean? So like, then I was like, oh my god, Beth, I can't finish this book. Who am I? But now I'm just like, if you need a sign to give up on that book, just give up on that book. There's so many good books. Read what you want. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Yeah, that was quite good this week. I feel like I laughed a lot yeah. <laughs> this episode. So do I. Also, it's very nice that we're in the same room again. I much prefer it this way. Yeah, same. If anyone, as always, has any comments or questions, they can email infatuatedpod at outlook. Infatuatedpodcast outlook.com. I totally know our brand. <laughs> I really know our stuff. Yeah, we also have social media, which I'll link down below as I always do along with everything that we mentioned yeah we're still doing two week yeah schedule. I think it'll be two week for a little while but um, not too much longer after this one comes out yeah we'll let you know when it goes back to normal and yeah I think that's it yeah we're gonna go watch Whip It now exactly oh I'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs>